You're listening to Berlin Psychoanalytic Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Alexander Dimitrievich, who reviews the concept of intersubjectivity. Intersubjectivity does not have a long history in psychoanalysis. It is becoming more and more important, but it's quite recent. The reason why it's recent, I think, is very important for understanding the history of psychoanalysis. The basic reason why it's recent is that people were reading Freud in a fundamentally rigid and conservative way for many decades. And the most important example of that is a rigid reading of Freud's so-called technical papers. These are the papers Freud wrote between 1912 and 1917 in order to explain to other people who were at that time motivated to become psychoanalysts how to work with patients. They mostly describe actually how not to work, what never to do. In that sense, they are quite conservative by definition. Freud, in those papers, used mostly two metaphors. And those were the metaphors of a surgeon and a blank screen to explain how, what kind of attitude we should have toward patients. So, in his opinion, the ideal attitude of an analyst was an attitude of objective distance toward whatever was going on in the session. The, the analysts were recommended or demanded not to be involved into the stories or, or lives of their patients, into their own relationships with patients, and possibly into clinical work in general. They were demanded to be distant, anonymous, and objective at all cost, and never to exchange presents, probably never to shake hands, never to talk about private things, never to answer questions about their private lives, and so on and so on. Freud believed this was very important, because in that case, whatever, in, whatever happens in the consulting room is a consequence of what is going on in the unconscious of the patient. We are like a blank screen and what we see is coming from the unconscious of the patient. Then we can be sure this is something we can analyze, interpret and the patient will therefore improve. Nowadays we know And, and to be fair, this was not obvious to analysts throughout. We know that Freud wrote this because there were some scandals going on in his innermost circle, some of his closest collaborators being involved with female patients, some of his closest collaborators taking huge amounts of money from patients or being accused of Uh, child sexual abuse, and he was afraid that would destroy the reputation of psychoanalysis. So therefore, the technical papers were very strict and rigid, so that this reputation would be somehow preserved. The problem is that they were read like the Ten Commandments, probably more in London and the United States than anywhere else, where these were the definitions of what it meant to be a psychoanalyst. 
anonymous, distant and neutral and objective. This also meant that psychoanalysts thought about the clinical situation as if it involved just the psychology of the patient. This is what we nowadays call the one-person psychology. Analysts believed their unconscious, their wishes, their emotions were not present in the consulting room, they were not influencing their clients, and because they had a good training analysis, they were simply completely clean, like a perfectly clean mirror where the patient can see who he or she is. It was only after the World War II that what we nowadays call the intersubjectivity theory in psychoanalysis started slowly developing and in many instances when some authors tried to develop it they were treated with censorship and ostracism and one historian of psychoanalysis says for one of those for John Bowlby his position was the position of a dissident in the Stalin Soviet Union. So this started with one group of analysts in London, whom nowadays we call the independent or the middle group, Donald Winnicott, John Bowlby, Rycroft, Fairbairn, and many following them later on. And it started with one group of analysts in the United States, whom some call the American middle school. So people who are very in their thinking and, and their clinical work similar to the British middle school. Conceptually, the intersubjectivity theory was focused on admitting and then researching the fact that in all the relationships, both persons have to be involved, that it was impossible to be as distant from another human being as you are from other planets or uh, sea animals or uh, when it comes to the concept of intersubjectivity, these authors were studying how impossible it is to be completely neutral and distant and anonymous in any form of social interaction, which makes psychotherapy completely different than astronomy or geography or marine biology or disciplines like that. In the clinical situation, the analyst's unconscious and wishes and needs and mistakes and forgetfulness are all present, possibly in every session. And a huge revolution in this domain was made by Winnicott's paper on the hate in countertransference, on how analysts can feel hatred for their patients, both for subjective reasons and for objective reasons. This paper was published in 1949 and, in a way, marks another era in the history of psychoanalysis. When it comes to the development, and in psychoanalysis development and, 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 and clinical stuff always go together, the revolutionary work came from Daniel Stern, who in the late 1960s started video recording the mother-infant interaction and who discovered very soon in the frame-by-frame observation that infants were relational beings from the very beginning, that infants were not born in some bubble 
or in a way autistic so that they do not observe the external world, but they are born with a very well-developed capacity to initiate, regulate and terminate social interaction. So this showed us that from the beginning and in every situation there is a need for social interaction and for intersubjectivity. Intersubjectivity, however, includes one step more or one step above. And that is the idea that in the social interaction you are aware that you are communicating with another subject. That this is not just someone who is there to be your slave and fulfill your needs as usually the mother or the primary caregiver was seen in what we call the objects relations theory where psychoanalysts always wrote about baby being hungry then mother coming to feed the baby and such stuff. Now we need to try to understand how the communication between two subjects two independent usually adults goes on and about this several theories have been developed over the last couple of decades. A lot of contribution here comes from the feminist approaches inside psychoanalysis where women liberation and criticizing Freud's paper about female sexuality led several authors to articulating completely new ideas. One of the most prominent is the New York-based psychoanalyst by the name of Jessica Benjamin, who was a student in Frankfurt in the 1960s, who is very well acquainted with German philosophy and who was analyzed there in the 60s. Benjamin uses a combination of Winnicott and Hegelian philosophy to develop a theory of what she calls recognition. Recognition, in her opinion, is the most important process in becoming a subject. No one can become a subject in isolation. You can only become a subject if you're recognized as a subject by someone else. The person who can recognize you as a subject, of course, has to be another independent, free-willing subject. So, you become a subject only in the process of intersubjective recognition. The tragedy of human relationships, in Benjamin's opinion, is that the moment you recognize that another important person is a subject on his or her own, there is a danger this person can go away. So that very moment you start working on transforming this subject into an object, into a slave, again, so that they will never leave you. But the moment they become a slave again, there is no subject that will recognize you as independent subject, so you need to transform them into a subject again. So the problem of close relationships is the problem of this constant jumping up and down, probably, I would say, from the other person being a subject to the other person being an object, and trying to find out balance in that. These ideas were expressed in Benjamin's book The Bounds of Love, published in 1988, and developed in many different ways by different authors in the meantime. One of them 
is, as I mentioned, developmental. Another one is clinical. Analysts in the consulting room have to be subjects and recognize the subjectivity in themselves and the other person. So, admit to the patient that you were touched. Admit to the patient that you've made a mistake. Admit to the patient that you might miss them after the termination. Then, in the domain of social relationships, where the issue of dominance is extremely important. Is it one person who defines the relationship and has the power to decide, or both have to negotiate and recognize one another's initiative and power? And finally, political, between the countries or groups that are in war and conflict, that cannot improve unless they recognize the pain in the other that was caused by them or their compatriots. The intersubjective tradition has led to the possibly most relevant contemporary psychoanalytic contribution, and that's the idea of the analytic third. The idea that when we are in the analytic space and there are two persons talking, investigating, empathizing, or, if you will, recognizing one another, something new will be created, a new quality will be created, inside of which this investigation can be done. So, when the analytic third is working properly, when the therapeutic alliance is established, the analyst can be in the background and just observe what is going on and try to help from time to time and feel that there is this third space inside of which everything happens. The analyst has to be very alert and very active at moments when the analytic third is threatened, when there is some immediate urgent need in the patient to have a certain problem resolved. The task of the analyst is to recreate the therapeutic alliance and, the, and this third space where they can investigate something that does not belong to the analyst only or to the patient only, but is a unique creation of the two of them at that space at that moment. Intersubjectivity theory is not accepted by all psychoanalysts and there is a lot of controversy between different psychoanalytic schools. But I'm sure it will continue to be inspirational for many because many of its representatives are bringing additional knowledge to psychoanalysis. Like Benjamin or Donna Orange, they are well-versed in philosophy. Like Daniel Stern or Beatrice Beebe, they are excellent infant researchers and they are showing lots of new knowledge and hopefully new clinical approaches that will be beneficial for patients. Thank you for listening. For more content, subscribe to our podcast or find us on our YouTube channel. Psychoanalysis should be free.